Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for this Friday night. We're thankful that we can gather and that we can hear God's word. We pray that you would use this time and your spirit would join us to convict us in how we should change and how we can be better stewards of our work. I also pray that you would give me the words to speak, to be clear, and to be accurate to what you have to teach us tonight. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as you guys know, we've been going over a series uh, in stewardship here in joint heirs. Throughout the summer, we've been covering different topics on stewardship, and we've been learning about how to be faithful in what God has entrusted us to manage. And if you want to look online on our podcast, we have a, a bunch of different topics, and I encourage you to, to download them and to learn. Um, last week, Levon actually taught on the stewardship of talents, and he encouraged us to Um, to use our talents and our skills to develop them and to be excellent to the glory of God. And closely related to to that is tonight's topic of the stewardship of work. So we're going to be talking about work tonight, and I know this is probably like the very last thing that you want to be thinking about on a Friday night. Uh, For most of us, we've just completed uh, a week of work. We spent our 40 or 50 hours or whatever it was working. Uh, For most of us, we spend eight hours a day working. Um, If you sleep for eight hours, um, that means you have 16 hours that you're awake. Eight hours divided by 16 is exactly 50% of your day is spent working. You think about your commute hours, your lunch, your breaks, even the off hours where you're just thinking about work, and work is easily the majority of your average day. So after a long week of working, you know, you're ready to kick off the weekend with your brothers and sisters here in Joint Heirs, and guess what? We're going to talk about work. <laughs> but it's for precisely that reason that work is the majority of your regular day. Um, that's the reason why this topic is so important. Um, I say without any hint of exaggeration that from a time perspective, work will be your greatest opportunity to glorify God. Let me say that again, without any exaggeration, from the perspective of time, your work will be your greatest opportunity to glorify God. Um, I think about even my own time, right? I think about my service at church, even preparing this lesson, it takes a good chunk of my time. But really, when I compare it to the hours that I work, it's a very little part of what I do. I spend more time working than I spend quality time with my family, with my wife. I spend more time working than I do, uh, certainly than I, t- uh, than I spend in God's word and de- in devotion and in prayer. I spend more time working than I do in my hobbies and, and having fun and having leisure time. And so once again, I say that work will be your greatest opportunity to glorify God. Conversely, work is also the greatest risk that you will have to squander that opportunity to glorify God, and instead to bring shame upon God's name. And so I ask you, are you a good steward of your work? Are you a good steward of your work? Are you faithful in this gift of work that God has entrusted to you? And that's what we're going to explore tonight, and we're going to learn about two foundational instructions on how to glorify God in your work. Two foundational instructions and how to glorify God in your work and so that you can bring glory to God every single day. So for this, or let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We can go to the very beginning and we have to start here. Uh, the first foundational instruction that I have for you tonight is number one, to work heartily to glorify God's image. Work heartily to glorify God's image. My goal right now in going through this account in Genesis is to first build a biblical theology of work. And so we're going to jump right into, actually towards the end of the creation account. God has already made the majority of the universe. He's made the planets. He's made the sun. He's made land, water, plants, and every living creature except for one man and woman. And that's where we jump in here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every, plant, every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Continuing to chapter 2, says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Right? So still under this first point of work heartily to glorify God's image, I want to make a sub-point here for letter A. And the first thing that we need to establish when we talk about work from Scripture is letter A, that God is a worker. God is a worker. And we see this very clearly in verse 2 when it says that on the seventh day, God finished his work. God rightly calls his creation, the six days that he made the heavens and the earth, he rightfully calls that his work. And it doesn't take long to look at the creation around us to realize how extensive God's work really is. Right? You, you think about even when you're in grade school and you learned about the earth and how somehow, I don't even know why, but it spins on an axis right? to give us a sense of time, to give us a sense of day and night. God also created the sun. And laws such as gravity that cause our earth to orbit around the sun to create seasons and to create years. And somehow there's green plants that are able to harvest the energy from the sun to take water from the ground and to take carbon dioxide from the air and create uh, energy and they're able to grow. Photosynthesis, right? I think I learned that in third grade or something. And somehow animals and humans are able to eat those leaves and eat those plants, and they themselves are able to grow and to have energy. You see, all of this was part of God's work, and it takes, took planning and foresight to see not, how, not just of how all these individual things would, would work, but also how they would work together. And for six days, he executed that plan, and he created the world. And so God rightfully calls his creation his work, right? And even though in our society we, we like to, you know, we like to boast that we are the scientifically or technologically advanced and we know, you know, a lot about the world, um, we're just barely scratching the surface, right? Whether scientists believe in God or not, when they make a scientific discovery, they're discovering what God has already done. They're seeing his work. And I really believe that us as mankind, we're going to be studying about God's work until Christ returns. And God's work continues even today in how he maintains this earth. Romans 8.28 says that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, God is a worker even today in his providence. But perhaps God's greatest work is actually in salvation. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll see his work of salvation. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, very familiar here. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And very familiar here, Paul is talking about how each one of us in our salvation, that we don't work for it. 
right? It's not God doesn't save us because we're good or because we work and we follow his laws. But instead, in verse 10, we see who the worker is. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, in salvation, right, we are not the workers, God is the worker. He is the one who worked salvation in us. It was God the Father who worked out the salvation plan, and he sent Jesus to die for you. It was God the Son who worked to earn righteousness, and he worked to earn forgiveness by dying on the cross. And it was the Holy Spirit who worked in your heart to convict you of your sin and to give you saving faith. If you're a Christian today, If your sins have been forgiven, it's because God is a worker. And so we learn here that God is a worker, and because what God does is always good and always right, we learn that work is good. And so that's the first letter A that we, or first point that we need to make is that God is a worker. And now we move. And we're building, once again, our theological framework about how to think about work. And we come to letter B, which is that your work reflects God's work. Your work reflects God's work. And for this, we go back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning of the passage that we read in verse 26. Once again, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see in verse 26, that very familiar phrase that we talk a lot about says that God made man in his image or in our image, right? Talking about God in the Trinity. Every single man, every single woman that's ever been created has been made in the image of God. Um, but I have to be honest with you, when, when I see this phrase, and I see it a lot, um, it's still kind of nebulous to me. Like, I, I don't quite understand what it actually means to be made in the image of God. And, and sometimes we, we focus on how, you know, we have a soul, we have emotions, we have that spiritual connection with God, and I agree with that, that that's part of being made in the image of God. But I would actually argue that the most direct reflection of us being made in God's image is actually in the authority that God has given us over creation, right? You remember, we're we're talking about Genesis chapter 1 here. Um, God has been establishing his sovereignty, his power, his dominion over creation by making it, by speaking it into existence. God has established that he is God, that he is the sovereign one. But what's really interesting here in verse 26 is that some of that authority, some of that sovereignty, if you will, is actually delegated to us, to mankind, to men, and to women. Right? Let's look at verse, once again, verse uh, 28. Um, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And we see those words, subdue and dominion. And that's talking about the authority that God has delegated to each one of us. The word dominion is often used to describe God ruling over his creation um, or, or of a king ruling over his nation. Subdue it often talks about how man has authority over the physical earth. And so, being made in the image of God means that we, God has given us the privilege and the right to have some authority here on earth. But we have to ask again, um, what does that actually look like? <laughs> what does it actually look like? I don't feel like I have authority, but what does that actually look like for an individual to have authority over the earth? Uh, well, I believe that in Genesis, God actually gives us a picture of it. And you don't have to turn far. It's in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Genesis 2 is a recounting of the creation account, but it's uh, from a different viewpoint. It focuses primarily on the creation of man. And so God creates Adam, and we reach the same point in our story that we just read in in verse, uh, excuse me, in chapter 1, where God creates Adam, and then he gives him some responsibility. 
Genesis 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. So I would argue that the primary way that we exercise our authority over the earth is by working. Is by working. The word for work it, some of your translations might have to cultivate or to serve or develop. And what you can think of is that, you know, Adam, he was placed in the garden to work the garden, to develop it. You know, God had already given, uh, and you can think of it that God had already made, you know, the fruit trees or the vegetables that Adam would, uh, would eat for food. Um, but the amazing thing is that God actually tells Adam to develop it, right, to improve it. And you can think of if you had like an apple tree, right? Uh, you let it go wild, it'll still produce apples that you can eat for food. Um, but if you're a skillful gardener, um, you can take care of it. And you can actually make that tree produce better fruit or more fruit. You know, you know when to water it, you know when to fertilize it, you know how to prune it, you know the exact season that you need to pick it, you know how to protect it from you know, all the squirrels or whatever that want to eat those apples. And you can actually develop that tree and work that tree to make it better. And I believe that, you know, we don't know all of what Adam did in the garden, but I believe that's some of it there, to cultivate the ground, to improve upon it. And God also told him to keep it. Um, that means to maintain. Whatever Adam had done to improve the grounds, God told him to keep it, to maintain it, to, to, keep, that, uh, to keep that up. That maybe means to continue to cut the trees or the flower, the, the flower beds to keep them looking good or continue to water those plants. And I want us to actually camp out here a little bit, because you might have missed it um, on just truly how profound this command was to Adam. Um, because when you think about it, this command to work and to keep the garden actually implies that we as mankind actually have the ability to improve God's creation, to make God's creation better. You think about it, right? When God made the earth every single day, he said that his creation was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. But you ever think that God never actually said that his, his creation was complete? He never said that. He never said that because there was more for this creation. There was more that uh, that there's more improvement that this creation could have. And it's not necessarily that this creation was, his creation was wrong, right? It was perfect in the sense that there was nothing wrong with it. But mankind was created to actually improve his creation. And so God commissions and he creates human beings for this specific purpose to use the resources that God has made and to make it better. You can even say that for us as image bearers of God, that God actually gave us the, uh, the same ability to create. Maybe not out of thin air, maybe not out of nothing, but we can actually create and we can make new things. And this is a great privilege that we have as human beings. And so as we're talking about work, I do want to define uh, work pretty broadly here. Uh, I'm going to define it just by the words that we see here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that it involves working or to develop. Uh, it could be something new, or it could be something that you're trying to improve, um, or it could just be keeping. It could be maintenance. It could be uh, prolonging something that, that someone else has made. And I think it's helpful for us to think about our own work and to see how it falls into this, one of these categories, or perhaps both, uh, to work or to keep it. You know, for myself, I'm, I'm an engineer, and so my whole job is to build new technology or products or service. Uh, for those who are in construction, right, they, they also work. They're building new buildings. Uh, for teachers, they're certainly working to educate the next generation. For people in the food industry, they're either growing food or making food or cooking food. Uh, for keeping it, for maintenance, certainly I think about the maintenance workers who work in, in a building, I think about people who work in healthcare, right, to maintain uh, people's good health, or perhaps, you know, to build their patients back up. Uh, for keeping it, I also think about the military or the police who maintain our uh, peace in our society. I think about attorneys or people in, in finance who are protecting the interests of their company. See, all of these are extensions of what God commanded Adam 
to work and to keep. For those of you who are still in school, right, you're studying so that you can enter into the workforce. And even the act of studying, taking tests, doing projects itself is work. I think about the, the workers at home, right? Primarily uh, the moms who, who work at home. Uh, they're training up the next generation, and they're also maintaining order and, uh, in the house. And oftentimes a stay-at-home mom's work is probably more mentally and physically demanding than many of our office jobs now. Work also includes serving at church. You know, preparing this message certainly is, is a work. It's a labor. And for many of the ways that you serve on Sundays or throughout the week, that is also work. All right, so we've established so far, right, that God is a worker, that your, reflect, that your work reflects God's work. And so now I want to get a little practical, right, to, to apply these principles that we've learned. And so I want to talk about four practical applications here. Uh, and the first one want to say is that we need to learn uh, to enjoy work. Learn to enjoy work. Uh, now, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, you need to gush about your job, right? I'm not saying that you need to love your career and tell everyone how much you, you love it, right? Uh, but what I am saying is that we need to learn to enjoy being productive, uh, getting things done. Uh, and this is important uh, because a lot of times I I don't feel this way, right? I don't feel like work uh, is a privilege, right? I, don't, I think work is the curse, right? I don't think it's a privilege in this life. But I need to go back to, uh, to Genesis, which teaches me that God has entrusted me with a great stewardship to reflect his image as a worker. Remember, God had no obligation to make you a human being. No obligation, right? He could have just made you an animal where you just survive, right? Animals, they don't produce. They don't develop anything. They live, and they die, and that's it. Or, you know what? God could have actually just, like, made you a rock, like a rock on the ground, and the way that you glorify God is just by being a rock, and that's like the whole of your existence, right, for all of eternity is just being a rock. But we need to understand that God made us to be so much more than that, so much more than an animal, so much more than an inanimate object, but he made us in his image to reflect his glory. And that should bring joy to our heart. And the earlier in your life that you are convicted of this truth, the easier it will be to wake up in the morning when your alarm clock goes up at 7 a.m., 6 a.m., 5 a.m., or whenever it goes off. Because you wake up realizing that today's another day that you can reflect the glory of God in your work. And so take joy, right? Take joy when you finish a project, or you hit a major milestone at work, you know, celebrate that promotion that you get. Celebrate that time you get a new job that you really worked hard for, and praise God that he has given you the ability to work. So that's the first one. Learn to enjoy work. And number two is do not idolize rest. Do not idolize rest. And once again, this is one that I, I struggle with because I I tend to think that rest is like the pinnacle of living. Right? Just like, give me you know, a nice couch, give me a can of Coke, give me a good movie to watch, and man, I'm a, I'm a happy person, right? And I think that this is why I work, that wor I work so that I can rest. And some of you might experience this also, or I certainly do when, when I, uh, my heart is just like drawn to these online articles where someone said that they retired at like the age of 33 or something. And it's like, man, I want to do that too, right? I just want to work so I can retire and then my life will be complete. Um, some of you have a microcosm of this every week where you're, you, th you think you work for these five days a week so that you can have two days off. Um, or you work your eight hours a day so you can have your evenings free. Um, but this is not really a biblical way to think because, you know, I, I, I will say that rest and leisure, it can be a way that we glorify God, but primarily God has made you a worker. And in general and on most days, the way that you can glorify God is by working and being productive. All right, so do not idolize rest. Uh, number three, another application is do not complain about your work. Do not complain about your work. And this one's really hard. Uh, Philippians 2.14 says universally, right? It says, do, not, do all things 
without grumbling. Uh, this is really hard because complaining about work is just ingrained in our culture. Uh, I, I think about uh, my time when I'm in the office. Uh, we will find anything to complain about. Uh, we complain about uh, the hours that we work. We complain about the food, whether it's free or we have to pay for it. We complain about it. Uh, we complain against coworkers. Uh, we complain that our office is too dark. And then we complain that when the sun comes up, our office is too bright. Uh, we complaining, uh, and why complaining is wrong is because complaining, it really is a reflection of your own discontentment in your heart. Um, you're discontent because you don't really believe that it's a joy to, to work, to be made in the image of God. And if you continue to complain, and that is a habit in your life, I, I really do believe that your heart will become more and more bitter and resentful towards God. And also I will say is, um, you know, don't complain about work, but also don't complain about work when you're at church. Um, this happens all the time, right, on, on Sundays and on Friday nights, is that we complain about our work. And I'm not saying you can't share a prayer request if you're having difficulty at work. We should do that. We should share prayer requests, but should not come from a complaining heart. And if you do sense that complaining heart, you should ask God or you should ask those around you to, to pray that your heart would be content and that God would help you through your challenges, right? So that's number three, do not complain about your work. Uh, number four is to pursue excellence in your work. Pursue excellence in your work. Levon uh, preached, and, and, and basically his whole sermon on the stewardship of talent last week uh, was really, that was the main message, right? It's to pursue excellence in everything that you do. And we see that also here in the Genesis account, right? At the end of each day, God said that his creation was good. You know, God never does a, a sloppy job. Right? He never does a half a job half-heartedly. Uh, but everything that God does is good. And so if we're to reflect his image, our work should also be excellent. And again, it's not, it's not being a perfectionist. It's not about having unrealistic expectations, but it's about doing your best given your time constraints, your resources and skills. You try your best. And I think that this is really well encapsulated by Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. And I want you to turn there so you can see these words. Colossians 3, verse 22 through 23. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, um, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, we don't live in a you know, master-slave or master-bondservant society today, um, but there's a lot of principles here that we can take and apply it to our working life. Um, verse 22 says for bondservants to obey in everything. And so part of our excellent work is that if you have a boss, if you're not self-employed, um, that means doing the task that you're assigned to, right, with a heart that's not complaining. Uh, but if your boss tells you to, gives you a project or a task, that means to do it and to do it well. Uh, it says in verse 22 that it's not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Um, that means you don't just do a good job when other people are looking. Um, that's, that it, doesn't mean, it means to, to work hard, not just when you have a deadline the next day. It means to work hard, not just to look good in front of others. It's to work hard, not taking advantage of your hybrid schedule or your work-from-home ability. Uh, it's working hard, not just when uh, your boss is in the room. Uh, a good test for yourself is uh, if you're sitting in the office and your boss walks in, uh, do you suddenly feel the urge that, oh, now I need to start working, you know? Uh, that shouldn't be the case. We should be working hard for the glory of God. And then verse 23, we see, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. And this is the key here, is that we have our earthly masters, we have our, our bosses and our supervisors, but ultimately our true master is the Lord himself. And so as we are doing these tasks in our work, we should really be doing it as if we're going to present this to Jesus himself. That's the quality of work that we should have. 
I also want to mention that your work is probably going to be your greatest testimony to your coworkers. Um, doing, being excellent and being uh, a, a good performer will be a great testimony. And, and once again, it's not equivalent to sharing the gospel, right? It's not the same as telling them about their sin and their need for Jesus. Uh, but no one's going to listen to someone who's bad at their job. Uh, no one's going to listen to someone if they're a slacker, if that's their reputation. No one's going to listen to them if they start talking to them about their sin. Uh, you lose all respect. And so I would say that you need to work hard also so that you would have that opportunity to share the gospel. And if you're a hard worker, I really do believe that people will listen to what you have to say. Uh, now as a side note, um, on, still under this, uh, this application of pursuing excellence at your work, um, is uh, sometimes the question comes up for Christians uh, if they should pursue an ambitious career. Uh, it's a good question. Should a Christian pursue an ambitious and potentially you know, high-paying career? Uh, and I'll, I'll say that there's a couple of things that you, know, you should think through first. Uh, first, whatever we do in this life as a Christian should not be motivated by sin. All right, so I think a lot of times when people are talking about ambitious career, they may be motivated by their pride. Uh, they want to have some, society, uh, some status in society, and so they want to be called, you know, doctor or, or whatever, right? Uh, that should not be your motivation. Uh, your motivation should, not also, should also not come from greed. It should not be because you want a lot of money or you want the stuff that money can buy. Uh, your career should not, or you should not, you should also not pursue an ambitious career because you see it um, as your identity, uh, where you feel like um, you need to pursue this because you have nothing in this life to, to live for. Um, your identity is that you are an image bearer of God. And if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. That's where your value is in. It's not in your day job. It's not in your eight to five, but it's in God. And so if you can pursue an ambitious career with humility without greed, and without it being your sense of identity, then I would say, actually, you should go for it. Uh, if you have that desire, you have the opportunity, and you have the aptitude, I would actually encourage you to pursue that ambitious career. And it's actually because of what I said before, um, that we need to have a testimony in the workplace. Uh, we need Christians at every single honorable profession, right? At the very top, right? At the executive level, uh, down to the mailroom. We need Christians, and we need Christians to be salt and light in the workplace and to do well so that they can be a light for the gospel. And so I know that there's a lot that goes into thinking about an ambitious career, but I hope that that challenges you. And of course, you know, we're, we're, I'm always happy to talk or, or to talk to, feel free to talk to some of the counselors here as well. So that's number one. Right, we're talking about foundational instructions, and we talked about, number one, to work heartily to glorify God's image. Now we're moving on to the second foundational instruction. The second one is this. Work to provide for yourself. Work to provide for yourself. For this, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Unfortunately, as you know, uh, Genesis continues, and it doesn't just end with Adam, you know, faithfully serving God and working the gar uh, Garden of Eden uh, for eternity. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan. Uh, they eat the forbidden fruit, and the fall occurs. Um, and they try to hide, but God's, God finds them, and then God issues the curse. Um, he curses the serpent. He curses the woman. And the portion that we're going to read is that he curses man. He curses Adam. And within this curse, we actually see that the nature of work changes. The nature of work changes. So let's read Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, this is God's voice, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and this thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. So in here we see that the nature of work changes, and right away we see that work becomes hard. Right? Work becomes hard. Uh, verse 17 and 18 talks about the ground becoming cursed as well, and thorns and thistles appear. Uh, before the curse, Adam probably loved working all the time, right? He would never get tired. He would never mess up. He always produced good results, and he never got poked by thorns as he was gardening. Uh, but now after the curse, he had to pull those weeds. He had to pull those thorns. The sun was beating on his back. His face and body would get sweaty and gross as he worked in the fields. And so work became hard. And we understand this, right? We have thorns and thistles. Sometimes those are people, right? Our coworkers, uh, difficult customers or clients, or they could just be the problem itself at work. And we understand that, that work is hard. Um, but for our lesson tonight, what I want to focus on is that actually now, uh, in addition that work became hard, now in the curse, we see that now there's a connection between work and food. There's a connection between work and food. Um, Adam always had to work, and he enjoyed it, but he didn't always have to work in order to eat. Uh, we, read, we read about this in Genesis 1, verse 29, how God just gave him all of the fruit and all the plants for him to eat. He didn't have to work for it. But now, because of the curse and because of sin, we, uh, the nature of work changes. So now, if he wants to eat, he needs to work. Verse 19 says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And so that's how we come to our, uh, our instruction, to work to provide for yourself. And really, Scripture is consistent uh, for this command, that we are to work to provide uh, for ourselves. Second um, Thessalonians 3.10 says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, there's many people in the world who actually don't believe this to be true. They don't believe that you should work to provide uh, for yourself, especially in America. And really, this line of thinking trickles into uh, a, lot of our, uh, a lot of our politics now. Um, people will celebrate and push for things such as you know, universal income, uh, where they believe that the government should coerce those who are wealthy uh, to provide for everyone else. Um, people also believe that you know, it, it's somehow unjust that not everyone has the same standard of living. And if you don't have a high standard of living, you're justified in stealing things. Uh, the Bible has nothing of the sort, right? It says nothing of the sort. The Bible says, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Bible says that, that if you are not willing to work, you deserve to starve. If you're not willing to work, you deserve to starve. And we have to understand that there, you know, there's exceptions to this, right? People with disabilities or mental, they're mentally unable to work, and those are good reasons for our government or probably better our church to help those individuals. And, and this is where you look at Scripture and you see just how precise it is uh, because it says here in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if anyone is not willing to work, um, I'd be willing to bet that if you were to ask someone with a disability and they were unable to work, if you ask them if they would trade their disability for a regular eight to five job, I think they would take that in a heartbeat. Uh, I think they would be willing to work. And so for us who have that ability to work, we need to be obeying this command to work to provide for yourself. And we should not only be doing this um, because it's because uh, it's part of the curse, right? But uh, also when we talk about providing for yourself and if you have a family or desire to have a family, um, working to provide is a powerful motivator. Um, for me, I think about, you know, if I didn't wake up, you know, at, at whenever my alarm clock went off and, and I didn't work, uh, I'd be living on the street. And my family would be living on the street and they would starve. Um, it's a powerful motivator, right, to, to understand that we have this responsibility. And so, I want to once again be practical in how we think about this to, to provide for yourself. And I know many of you already are. You're working your jobs and you're paying all of your bills, and that's great. Continue to do that. That's what God calls you to do. Um, and so I want to apply, or, or these are really more nuggets of wisdom, more, more so than biblical commands. Um, but the first nugget of wisdom I want to give you is to consider pay in your career. 
to consider pay in your career. Um, I know many of you are still in college, and for all of us, we're still very early in our careers. And I'm not saying that, you know, money is the number one thing that you need to consider in your job, right? It's not necessarily the driving force and what career you, you decide to pursue. But I do want to say it should be near the top, actually. Um, because really, the Bible makes the case that for work, we are to glorify God in our work, and we work to provide. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, you need to, you know, make the, as much money as you possibly can. Um, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that you need to make enough to provide for the basic necessities of life. Uh, clothes to wear, food to eat, you know, a nice uh, shelter to, to live in. Uh, you need to be able to provide for yourself in those ways. And so as you are thinking about your career path and your job, you really have to ask yourself, will this career path be able to provide a living? And if you don't know how much you're, you need to make to provide a living for yourself, um, that's okay right now. But you should figure it out. Um, you should learn how to, to make a budget, uh, especially if you want to live here in the Bay Area, especially if you want to live in California. You should learn to make a budget. Uh, look up how much it costs to rent a studio apartment in San Francisco if that's where you want to live. And you'll probably be shocked the first time you do it. It is incredibly uh, expensive. You should think about if you want a car, uh, how much are those car payments going to be? Learn about taxes and learn how much the government will tax you uh, when you earn that paycheck. Food costs. All of these things you, sh you should consider. And if you don't know how to do that, once again, it's okay, but ask around. I, I think this is really where we could benefit as brothers and sisters in Christ. For those of you who have done this already, um, please uh, be willing to share what, what you have learned and what God has taught you. Um, there's many, and, and regard, in regards to your career, if you don't know, you know what's a reasonable career track in your pay, um, once again, use, talk to the people in the body of the church. We are, we are blessed to have a multi-generational church with many different professions, and they can give you much wisdom in their, uh, in their career and how God has guided them. And so, once again, that's the first nugget of wisdom, is to consider pay in your career. Uh, the second nugget of wisdom here, um, and this is for, for those of you who are still living at home, um, is to pay rent to your parents. Pay rent to your parents. And I know it's somewhat controversial, um, but if you are working, and once again, this is wisdom, this is not God. God, you know, this is not God's command. Uh, but many of you are working and still living at home, and I have nothing against that. I really don't. Uh, I think it makes sense a lot of times for someone to live at home and with their parents. Um, but I would challenge you that if that's your situation, you're working and you're living at home, I would challenge you to have a real conversation with your parents and to talk about how you can contribute financially. And that may mean paying rent or paying for groceries and other utilities or paying for your car or whatever it may, whatever it may be um, because you want to be obeying this command. You want to be practicing this command to provide for yourself. And so I would challenge you to have that conversation with them and be willing to pay. And if they don't accept your financial means, I know that's probably a lot of the case for a lot of your parents where they're like, hey, you know, we don't want your money, right? We want you to save that money and we're happy for you to live here for free. Um, then I would say that you should do your fair share, or probably more than your fair share of chores around the house, right? Cleaning, cooking, buying groceries, taking out the garbage, whatever, uh, whatever uh, needs to happen, right, in the house, I would challenge you to be active in doing that because you want to get in that habit of providing for yourself and reminding yourself that living is not free and, and to work to provide for yourself is a biblical command, all right? Um, now I want to talk about something that is somewhat related to that, um, but it's not something that we talk about much, but it's still under the heading of providing, to work to provide. Um, and this command is to provide for your household. To provide for your household. And what I mean by that is to provide for your parents and for your grandparents. Uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy 5, and we'll see where we get this in Scripture. 1 Timothy 5, um, starting in verse 3. Um, to set the context here, Paul is making the case that the church is responsible for caring for widows. Uh, financially, they're responsible to, to care for widows. Uh, but there's two criteria that those widows need to meet. The first one is that they need to be faithful and godly. 
talks about in this passage that they need to have washed the feet of the saints, right? That's the first criteria. But the second one, and this is where it applies to us, is that these widows do not have any children or grandchildren that can provide for them. And so let's read about that in 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 3. It says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Skipping down to verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so, see here really clear that relatives, and we're talking about children and grandchildren. Verse 3 says to those children and grandchildren that they are to make some return to their aging parents, the people, to their parents who, who cannot, can no longer provide for themselves. And I, you know, after becoming a father, uh, I understand this uh, much more. It says to make some return, right, to pay back some of that love and some of that care that they gave to you. Um, I think about this when I, you know, when I change my son's diaper, right, I, caring for him, I don't really like doing it, um, but it's part of my, my love for him. And, and I like to joke sometimes that I'm changing his diaper in, in hopes that one day he'll change my diaper. And so, hope you guys got that, right? Someday, we're all going to need help. We're all going to need some physical help uh, because of the curse of sin. And I, you know, I say that in jest, but you know, I do hope that I raise my son in a way that he realizes that this is part of his responsibility as I and my wife get older. And so, yeah, so even if you're, um, yeah, and so I know that um, for, for many of us, our relationship with our parents is somewhat rocky. Uh, I know that there's a lot of baggage that's there, and this is a difficult command. Um, but understand that, you know, if you are here, you're alive today, you're living and breathing, understand that when you were young, someone cared for you. Someone put food on the table for you. Someone gave you a place to sleep, a shelter uh, to live in. And so really, it is your responsibility, if they can't do it themselves, to help them in their old age. Um, for all of us, um, these days are coming, and they're coming quickly. Our parents are getting older. We're getting older as well. Uh, and for some of us, and, and this is going to look different for, for different families, right? For, for some of you, this means that you need to visit them in their house regularly to help them around their house. For some of you, this is as simple as sending a check and making sure they can pay their bills. For some, it's paying for a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility or something like that that they can, they can live comfortably. Um, for some, it's hiring a full-time or part-time caretaker. Uh, and for some of you, this may mean in actually inviting your parents into your home so that you can be that caretaker for them. And I know that some of you are actually already doing this. And some of you have already done this in the past. And you understand the financial burden, the, the, the energy burden, and, and the time, it's costly. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who have done it or are doing it now, that God is well pleased with you. Uh, verse, three, or verse 4 talks about that, that you are showing godliness to your household and that this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so I, I look at you and, and I see you truly as godly examples to me and godly examples to the rest of us. And so... Um, yeah, God bless you for doing that work. Um, but for some of, some of us, uh, we look at this command to provide for your household, to provide for your parents. And man, in your heart, you, you just think, I, I don't want to give a dime to my parents. <laughs> like, I don't want to give them anything. Uh, that's how your relationship is uh, with them. And for you, if that's where you are, uh, verse 8 was written for you. Verse 8 was written for you. These are some of the strongest words that Paul has ever written in Scripture. And he says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you look at the relationship with your parents and you do not want to care for them in any way, um, I ask you to look at your faith. Um, to, to understand that you were an enemy of God that you hated God, and God still loved you, and God still cared for you. He cared enough to die for you. 
and you've experienced the love of Christ. And so even if you see your parents as your enemy, right, uh, you have to overcome that. Uh, you have to ask God to work in your heart to remove that, that selfishness or to, to pray that he would improve your relationship with your parents so that you can care for them. If they, if they reject your care, you know, that's between them and God, and um, that's, that may be what it is. But if there's anything that you can do to care for them, um, this is your responsibility. Um, for the rest of us, right, um, we may, you, might, you may know that your parents uh, don't have much financially. Uh, you know that when they retire, there's really nothing in their bank account. And so I would urge you now to make wise and smart financial decisions to prepare for that day. Uh, and to know that you will likely have to provide for them. And know that when you do it, you're doing a good and a godly thing. All right, so as we wrap up now, uh, when I think about work, um, you know, I often go, th- or I, I have gone through seasons before where um, I just feel that work is completely pointless. Um, maybe you feel that now, or maybe you felt that in the past, right? You, you wake up, your alarm goes off, you drive to work, you work, go home, you sleep, and you do it again, right? You wake up, go to work, you go home, then you go to sleep. And there's this endless cycle that keeps going, and it just feels pointless. Uh, I I identify with what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, you know, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I feel like I've had those exact words in my mind where work is just pointless. But then, in the next chapter, in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, the preacher says this, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Here, the Word of God tells us that if you want to have enjoyment in your work, um, that comes from God. And it comes from these foundational instructions that we have tonight, right? That you have a great privilege to reflect the image of God through your work, and you also have the responsibility to provide for yourself. And if you do those things and you understand the great privilege that it is to be made in the image of God, I do believe that God will give you joy in your work. And so let's work heartily and work heartily for the glory of God. Uh, Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we're thankful that your scripture speaks uh, to all areas of our life, especially as one as so important as work. I pray for each one of us here that as we work in the workplace or at home um, or at church, that we would do so heartily and we would do so excellently to reflect your image. Lord, we're thankful for this gift of work and and, in those times that we are not thankful, I pray that you would work in our hearts to change it and to really seek to honor you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.